Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Laura Stark at Vanderbilt University. In many American cities, zoos have long been a central part of the urban ecosystem. In his new book, American Zoo, sociologist David Grazian at the University of Pennsylvania takes readers inside zoos in the 21st century to look at how they operate and what effects on how humans and non-human animals relate. It's based on years of fieldwork as a volunteer educator. And it really is urban ethnography at its best. The book is smart, fun, readable. I recently had the chance to interview Brazian about American Zoo with 29 students in my course, Healing Animals. David Grazian, thank you very much for taking the time to talk with uh, me and the students in Healing Healing Animals about your new book, American Zoo. So I want to start off by asking you about the two big concepts that organize the book. First, uh, authenticity, and then second, the Anthropocene. So just starting with authenticity, you're uh, an urban uh, ethnographer and a cultural sociologist. So this might seem like a little bit of a departure looking at zoos based on your previous work on hip-hop music and, and these sorts of things. So can you explain what cultural sociologists and urban ethnographers are doing when they're studying authenticity? Why does it matter for zoos? Sure. Um, you know, so in the contemporary age where so much, uh, so much of our cultural lives seems, uh, simulated, um, seems, um, you know, seems commercialized, um, we tend to gravitate toward and invest a lot of meaning and value in, um, in cultures, um, in fashions and styles, in genres uh, of music, uh, film, art, dance that we think of as authentic, that we think of as um, being the production of um, of sincerity, uh, as opposed to something performed uh, for uh, for an audience for uh, for for a fee. Um, and so, you know, so sociologists um, are interested in understanding, at least I am interested in understanding um, how people use authenticity um, as a means of evaluating stuff in the world. Um, and so I'm not so interested in the kinds of questions philosophers might ask about, you know, whether or not something is or is not authentic, um, but rather what does authentic what does it mean? What does it mean for? What does it mean for someone to sort of place value in things that they attribute a lot of authenticity to? Um, and what's the um, you know? And what does that? And what does that do for them? Um, you know, emotionally, morally, um, and aesthetically. Okay, great. So, 
in the book, you're especially focusing on authenticity and the idea of an authentic or true or real nature. And what you show is that the, the division between nature and culture is something that zoos have to actively produce so that this is a site to look at how the, the nature culture divide gets, gets created through the, the lens of authenticity. And one of the things that um, I found striking that you did uh, such an admirable job returning to in each of the chapters was to point out how zoos are a microcosm for thinking about life in the Anthropocene. So I wonder if you could say more about zoos um, sort of representing the fact that the Earth is now a, uh, a human-created environment, a human-created ecosystem, just like zoos. No, sure. So the Anthropocene is a concept um, that many geologists use uh, to refer to uh, to refer to the fact that human activity um, throughout civilization, the history of civilizations, but particularly during the Industrial Revolution um, and the last hundred years of the Industrial Revolution in particular, um, have forever transformed. Um, the very materiality of the earth, of the earth itself, um, and so we can see, um, and so we can see in um, in rocks below the surface of the earth, we can see, um, you know, we can see the ways in which the actual uh, the actual earth itself has been modified by atomic weapons testing, um, by um, over, you know. 150 years of fossil fuel use, um, and we particularly see this um, with the rise of the climate change crisis, as we see that um, human-induced activities, again, including um, including the uh, the emission of um, greenhouse gases um, like carbon dioxide and nitrogen and methane. Um, but also other kinds of human activities like um, deforestation and livestock uh, farming um, have uh, have changed the uh, have changed you know changed the average temperature of the earth have changed um, have changed the amount of ozone in the atmosphere um, have changed uh, have changed the uh, the average rates of extinction of of animals, and so today, animals uh, animals uh, become extinct at a rate one thousand times a baseline. Uh, you know, considering the, you know you know that it would you know compared to if if humans had it, you know compared to if humans had not impacted the had not impacted impacted the earth um with such a a large human footprint and so for me the zoo is a great place to sort of look at um what we think of as the natural world as something uh as, as something that is man made um and something that ultimately um that we are all responsible for in a way. Okay. So thinking about, um, how the, the categorical division really breaks down. It's something that experientially has to be created, uh, in many sites and, and zoos are emblematic, um, of this. One of the main points of the book also seems to be to point out that there's competing missions of zoos. They're, uh, supposed to be educational, but also 
to entertain people and also care about um, the the safety and well-being of animals as well. So you're showing how all of these uh, different missions of living together come together in the zoo. Um, One of the key concepts for you early on is also nature making as a process. Mm -hmm. And so we wanted to ask you more about that. I'm going to hand the mic over to Michelina. Sure. Uh, Your book focuses on the culture of nature, especially with regards to zoos. Why did you choose zoos to exemplify the culture of nature as opposed to another group of organizations that influence and are involved in the culture of nature? Oh, sure. I mean, what, you know, you know, a lot of times, you know, when you're doing this kind of research, the project finds you instead of you seeking out the project. Um, and so the zoo happened to be just a place where I was. I was spending a lot of time uh, with my son, um, who uh, was born just around the time I was looking for a new research project. And he and I were going to the zoo almost every weekend. And it was at the zoo that I began to start to make all of these different kinds of uh, of, of connections um, to look at the ways in which um, in which animal exhibits could be seen as sort of staged sets um, where nature could be reproduced on a micro on a micro scale, much in the same way that we reproduce the natural world outside the zoo um, as well. Um, it also seemed to me to be to be a place where, um, as a social world, there were a lot of different competing participants who were all thinking about the meaning of the zoo in fundamentally different kinds of ways, whether a place of entertainment or a place of education, a place for, you know, or a place uh, for the care of animals. Essentially, I mean, you, you wind up finding people that work at the zoo that are oriented, um, some are oriented toward um, human uh, visitors and audiences, and then others are, um, are oriented toward the animals uh, that reside um, at the zoo. And so the zoo became a place where you wind up seeing these same kinds of nature, culture, um, boundaries sort of, you sort of continue to replicate themselves um, over and over again. Um, and so to me, the... Um, and so to me, that became sort of a perfect place to sort of look at this puzzle of how people sort of, you know, create authenticity um, and, uh, and, and invest meaning in it um, in these kinds of um, manufactured uh, and staged uh, environments. Yeah, and uh, invest uh, in other ways as well. One of the most uh, shocking things I found in your book was seeing how uh, commodified so many things were and seeing the price tag of the annual rental uh, from the Republic of China for one of their panda bears, for example, of $1.1 million a year. Um, Just that this is really big business. Uh, And one of the accomplishments is that zoos at times – in this competing mission to both educate and also uh, take care of their bottom line to commercialize, end up sanitizing the reputations of the very corporations that are causing environmental degradations and the things that the zoos are educating against. So uh, the the Exxon Mobil tiger exhibit, for example, uh, seems uh, particularly ironic. Um, so I wonder if you could say more about how this tension affects 
the educational programming that zoos actually do? How do we see the consequences of the uh, financial stakes of zoos uh, playing out in education programs? No, sure. So, you know, so you know, zoos are reliant um, uh, on both funding from corporate donors and from, um, you know, and from revenue generated um, at the turnstile, um, you know, based on, uh, based on attendance rates. Um, and so as a result, um, although zoos do make the claim um, to be centers of environmental education um, and scientific research, um, in point of fact, they try to do this without upsetting um, the sort of upsetting the cart by biting the hand that feeds them. And so, and so we wind up seeing two things take place at the zoo. The first is um, because zoos rely on mass audiences um, that um, with that that sh- that may hold a diversity of religious. Uh, uh, of religiosity um, and ideology and belief, zoos go out of their way um, to sort of de-emphasize the process of human evolution. Um, And this was something that was really surprising to me. A second thing, though, is that zoos tend not to emphasize climate change um, particularly climate change, climate change's causes as being the result of, um, of, you know, human, uh, human activities, again, particularly, um, fossil fuel emissions. Um, and I have to, I have to say that in part, this, uh, this seems to be because so many, uh, oil and petroleum companies, um, give so much, to zoos again, like Exxon, like BP, like BP, um, and so zoos often portray climate change as what I call a crisis without a cause, um, and so they will, and so they will discuss sort of climate change and rising sea levels and um, and the way that that is impacting the world without sort of without without pointing to um without pointing to uh sort of its causes um in um in monopoly capitalism in the industrial revolution um and in the particular uh the particularly egregious acts of again of major petroleum companies um and so you see this in all sorts of all sorts of sort of bizarre ways right and so the bp um deep horizon uh, oil spill uh was a perfect opportunity to talk about um to talk about how um how corporate um how corporate uh malfeasance and irresponsibility could lead um to right to this extraordinary uh this ex- this extraordinary crisis in the gulf um you know and you know and yet there's no and yet and yet zoos didn't spend any time talking about sort of pollution or where pollution comes from um or the or the ways in which uh, BP would uh, was responsible for that oil spill, um, and you can see this with you know all sorts of you know all sorts of other kinds of um, 
of sort of dis- of disasters that impact the natural world that are the cause of right that are the cause of again corporate irresponsibility um and zoos again tried to sort of stay away from that ground um you know rather than sort of really leading uh re- really leading the charge um against these kinds of against these against you know the activities of the fossil fuel industry and these kinds of uh, and these and these kinds of corporations okay yeah through so through the the zoo programming itself and the bizarre ways that it gets managed um, we can see the boundary work between nature and culture getting made inside the zoo but there are also factors um, from the corporate media that come into the zoo from outside sources namely the paying customers and here i'm going to hand uh, the mic over to troy Professor Grossi, um, throughout the book, you mentioned how influential pop culture um, uh, characters are in, are in the entertainment value of zoos. Kids call, call clownfish Nemo and want to see a bird that looks like Blue from Rio. Are animal pop culture references born out of a natural human gravitation to particular animals, or is the connection through pop culture constructed to highlight particular animals for conservation, financial, or other reasons? Um. Can you? I'm sorry. Can you repeat, uh, Laura? Can you repeat part of the the, the 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 crux of the question? Yeah. So the the main uh, uh, point of the question is how pop culture and the media industry shapes the way that people interact with zoo animals and with the zoo ecosystem. No, sure. I mean, so the, I mean, the biggest way is that the biggest way is, and you see this in the ways that um, that visitors. Um, have this expectation that animals will entertain them or perform for them, um, or at the very least will interact with them. Um, and my sense is that this comes from um, the ways in which animals have been anthropomorphized um, in popular culture. And it's not just in contemporary popular culture, right? I mean, the anthropos, the, you know, anth- you know, we can see sort of, you know, since the age of, you know, Aesop, Right, um, the sort of the attribution of um, human characteristics to animals, um, but what you know, what the world of Disney and pop culture more generally has created, right, is sort of an atmosphere where um, where humans feel as though um, animals uh, animals uh, animals are put on display to entertain. To entertain them, to interact, to interact with them in funny or humorous ways. Um, very often, um, so you know, visitors will get very annoyed if the animal seems not to be paying attention to them. Um, so, in a certain sense, they're also performing for the animals, and they get annoyed when the animals aren't aren't paying aren't paying attention. It also leads to all sorts of um, all sorts of you know disappointment among visitors who have the expectation that animals are going to behave um, at the zoo or that animals behave in the wild the way that they do in movies and on television. And so, right, so the male lion, for instance, is at rest 20 hours a day. Um, And that's in the wild and at the the zoo. Um, But people don't associate sort of lions with, you know, just kind of laying around, um, doing nothing or sleeping. Um, And so they feel kind of gypped in a way when they see see a lion at rest at the zoo and they'll scream at it. They'll try to bang on on the glass walls of its enclosure to wake it up. 
And again, and my sense is that this comes from the sort of expectation that um, that kids, but also adults, get from um, from the pop cultural landscape um, that animals are these you know cute furry creatures that are um, that are put on the earth to amuse uh, to amuse to amuse humans um, and then perform with and inter and interact with them. Um, you know, you have to remember the other kind of animal that people um, that humans are most apt to interact with are pets. Um, and so people very often try to interact with animals, with, with the animals at the zoo, as if they were domesticated um, dogs, and, dogs and cats. Um, and even at times comparing the wild cats at the zoo, for instance, to their own, uh, to their own kitties um, that they have back, uh, back home. One of the most remarkable things uh, in reading your the great field notes that you reported in the book is that animals are really boring a lot of the time, and uh, the expectation <laughs> that they're also not supposed to do uh, uh, grown-up things in public. So no sex, uh, no vomiting, although I guess that's, uh, uh, adults don't have an exclusive uh, <laughs> hold on vomiting. But uh, the idea that lying around and uh, doing naughty or uh, unsanitary things are not what's supposed to happen in a zoo. So again, this management. Now, to follow up, by way of follow-up, I want to pass the mic over to Ellen uh, for a question. Building off of what you had just discussed about viewing animals through the lens of entertainment, Chapter 5 of mm -hmm. the book takes a critical perspective of how the digital world has distorted perceptions and expectations of animals through um, films, cartoons, and stuff like that. So, in your opinion, how could the use of technology be better adapted to serve more educated purposes? Um, I'm sorry. So, was the so was the question was the basic question how could digital technology be um, be wielded in order to um, in order to improve zoos or to create a uh, or to create a better uh, a better sort of world of, inter of interaction between humans and animals. That kind of thing. We'd also be interested um, in your view as a sociologist on how uh, how media works its magic, how films, photography uh, works to mediate. Well, you know, it's. I mean, so one of the interesting things, right, about about um, of one of the ironies of zoos, right, is that people when they people go to the zoo, they I mean, they, what they want to see is not quite the real thing. They, what they want to see is sort of the, a, a representation, because what they think of as the real animal is actually this idealized representation of the animal. And so when they see the actual lion um, at the zoo, it, it fails to impress in the way that a lion does in, um, in, a, nature doc in a nature documentary. Um, where a camera crew has uh, has staked out uh, has staked out um, you know land in the Serengeti for you know hours and hour you know for hours or you know even uh, days or months um, trying to sort of capture these animals uh, these animals on film in just the right uh, in just the right light um, and so as a result uh, you know the the sort of the the four D the four D IMAX movies 
um, that portray sort of, you know, animals in these natural settings um, in sort of big budget documentaries um, wind up competing um, with the uh, with the actual visuals that visitors can actually experience um, can actually experience at the zoo. Um, and so, and it's, and there, there, it becomes really, really tricky, right, for the zoo to be able to sort of sell, um, to sort of sell its own, um, its own version of its own version of reality, um, when the digitized version um, seems so much more appealing, and to a certain extent, seems so much more real, given that those images are filmed, um, are filmed on, are filmed on location. Um, you know, although it's important to rem- it's important to remember that you know the context in which um, that filming takes place um, also relies on the same kinds of technologies of staging that zoos rely on in order to uh, in order to in order to create uh, what passes uh, what passes for a natural a natural habitat for an animal. Um, but uh, you know, but. You know, to talk about sort of what digital technology does does offer us. I mean, one of the things it offers one of the things that it offers us is a way to appreciate um, endangered animals or very large animals or intelligent animals um, that it may may it may it may not make a lot of sense for us to continue to breed in captivity. Um, and display uh, and display on exhibit, um, and so for instance, at the end of the book, I talk about uh, you know I talk about how you know many zoos have gotten rid of their elephant ex- uh, their elephant collections um, because they realize that they can't take care of them uh, to the to the fullest extent that they that those animals deserve. There's an argument to be made that highly intelligent mammals, whether they be orcas. Um, or gorillas and chimpanzees um, perhaps not be bred and ca- not be continued to be bred in captivity, um, and those uh, and those still with us released into larger uh, into lar- into larger sanctuaries. Um, and the sort of digital technology that gets us extraordinarily close to those endangered animals that that do live in the few habitats that they do have um, can give people the experience of being up close in a way that in a way that a zoo, in a way that a lot of contemporary zoos can no longer really provide for uh, provide for themselves and lately there's been all this interesting work with um, you know web you know small video cameras placed in actual um, not only in zoo enclosures but actual animal um, habitats in the wild you know I use wild in quotes there because you know the wild we don't associate you know the wilderness with camera crews um, but these can provide this way for us um, to be able to view animals in their natural habitat um, and see their and and see how they live their lives um, and the uh, and the beauty and the majesty um, that uh, that uh, that their that their reality represents for us. Your book does such a nice job of showing and giving the historical context for the pushback against uh, captivity, uh, keeping animals in captivity, and even the cloning programs um, that are going on uh, in, in in contrast to various captive breeding programs. Uh, one of my favorite moments in the book also was when your son and his friend were um, 
particularly inspired by the squirrel in the zoo garbage can, even though that's not something they're supposed to be uh, have awe awe about. Um, We're also cheering because uh, Philadelphia Zoo. So you're based in Philadelphia, and of course we're in Tennessee. That you that uh, Philly Zoo shipped its its, uh, elephants to Tennessee. So we had a little bit of uh, um, a gold star for ourselves (laughs) down here. That's right. But (laughs) thinking a bit more about um, the the place of nature or the category of nature and how you're unpacking it, I'm going to hand the mic over to Paul for his question to follow up. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much for uh, taking the time to speak with us, uh, Dr. Grazia. Um, my question is, um, in Chapter 8 of your book, you argue that zoos should exhibit fewer species with greater depth on a, with focus on lesser-known or popular species for exhibitions. So going back to nature documentaries, do you think this attitude should be reflected in them as well as um, – tend to focus on the same animals that contemporaries used to? Well, so actually I want to, you know, I would direct your attention to this amazing movie called Microcosmos, um, which is large, which is about the, it's largely about um, the world of very, very small animals, um, mostly insects. Um, and just in the same, and so just in the same way that, you know, a few years ago, we saw this explosion of movies like A Bug's Life and Ants and sort of a sort of a sort of a, a you know, sort of a, a, a human size view of um, of the of the micro natural world. Um, a film like Microcosmos actually um, provides this sort of wonderful way to way to look at the 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 ground of a forest, um, again, at that small scale. And this is also, uh, some, this is also a film that could only be made, um, with very special digital cameras, um, that could capture, um, that could capture an incredible resolution, um, the sort of the the complexity of uh, the complexity of insects, and I would say that, and I, and I would I would include insects as certainly um, a kind of a kind of zoo animal that um, that while considered somewhat controversial, because there are certainly a lot of visitors that don't consider insects to be. Yeah, to be a typical zoo animal at all, um, they do they do tend to uh, excite. Uh, young children, um, particularly because they can get up really close to them. Um, and uh, a lot of zoos have started to use uh, insects in order to talk about um, natural processes like um, like composting and sort of the life and and the sort of the life cycle of the forest. Um, and they and they give us sort of and they give us an opportunity um, to present sort of to present really the wonders the wonders of nature in a way um, in a way that don't require the same kind of um, investment um, investment uh, in land they don't require the kind of the kind of you know the density of um, of mammal of mammal exhibits. Um, you know that don't give uh, that don't give that much space to these larger uh, to these larger beasts. Um, so, I, in a certain sense, you know, and, and in a way, sort of, we can see how popular culture itself also tries to. Um, you know, we see this particularly in the latest Disney movie Zootopia, um, where there is an emphasis on both small animals as well as as well as well as large animals. And I think these kinds of distinctions. Um, 
are are you know tend to get somewhat lost on children who are simply uh you know who are simply enchanted um you know by the range of the animal kingdom from you know from the largest animal to the smallest in contrast to the charismatic uh, macro fauna, you nicely spend a lot of time talking about your field work as a volunteer with charis- uh, uncharismatic micro fauna and your your, right. your fun with cockroaches and trying to get them to, to sell to the paying customers. Um, right. But, but I, I also just want to flag for listeners that there's really wonderful um, re- reflections and arguments about the labor force of zoos and um, how the very low wage labor force uh, relates to animals, also relates to each other, and the incredible disparity in um, in incomes. Based, I mean, highly educated people getting not very much money compared to people like the CEOs and especially the marketing directors, given that zoos are such big business. Now, I, I want to um, start wrapping up here and think of, ask you to think a little bit about um, the title of the book, American Zoo. And for this, I'm just going to hand the mic over to Carly. Mm-hmm. Professor Grazian, we're interested in kind of expanding our discussion to a 30,000-foot view, per se, and you focus a lot or almost the entirety of your book on the American zoo, but how does your point of the construction of the natural world world play into international or play internationally and into um, work in international zoos? Sure. Um, Well, you know, one thing, one thing to sort of, one thing to sort of say about this is, um, you know, the people, when when people talk to me about other kinds of experiences and interactions that they've had with animals, particularly abroad, they often make reference to going on, uh, going on African, an African safari. Um, and what's interesting is that they begin to discover um, that those safaris are sort of also cre- that they also tend to sort of, um, be staged to a certain extent, right? You wind up, uh, right? You're looking at you. You're visiting. You're visiting animals that are that are in highly protected um, spaces of quote unquote of quote unquote wilderness. Um, the the safari leaders are bring the the tour guides bring their tours um, to. Um, to demarcated areas um, where they'll be able to where they'll be able to see um, the kind of uh, the kind of animals that uh, American tourists want to want to see, um, and in fact there is um, and in fact there is a there is this there is this strange irony in the fact that the sort of that one of the things that trophy hunting does in uh, does in African countries is it increases the value of live um, predators um, like uh, like lions that may otherwise attack uh, attack uh, attack livestock um, or uh, or get into uh, get into a farmer's a farmer's fields um, and so one of the things that the trophy hunting does um, is it encourages um, it encourages uh, farmers to uh, to figure out ways 
um, to figure out ways to uh, protect their own livestock without actually going out and shooting these animals uh, and shooting these animals these animals themselves. Um, but you know, one of the things that I hope people get from the book is also is is just simply that it gives them a way to look at the ways in which a lot of you know a lot of the settings in which humans try to interact with the natural world are also um, are also manufactured um, and and highly designed um, for our uh, right for our benefit i don 't think it makes our experiences of those places, whether they be national parks um, or forest preserves um, i don 't think it makes that experience of them any less meaningful or ma- or magical um, but the sooner we can sort of get ar- we can sort of get around this imaginary distinction between culture and nature, um, the closer we get to coming to terms um, with uh, with the most immediate crisis at hand, which is the environmental and climate change and climate change crisis, um, where we see those sort of boundaries between culture and nature um, sort of you know. Uh, irrevocably uh, broken forever. Many of the programs that are going on that you think are good examples are in the in the global south. And one of the things that zoos do um, through their their programming, you show is sort of perpetuate this uh, mythic place of uh, of Africa, of uh, South America. These sorts of things, often in unhelpful. Um, in unhelpful ways. So I just want to say by way of wrap up to listeners that you are an incredibly generous scholar with other contemporary workers in areas like um, sociology of culture and animals and also historians. And I've never seen uh, in recent years such great use of Emile Durkheim as well and thinking about totems and animals. So it's inevitable, though, that um, to, to read a book like this and not ask the how should we live sort of question. So for this, I'm going to hand it over uh, to Cayenne. Professor Grazian, how did your research and experiences in making this book affect your own conservation efforts, if at all? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I think I think it's made me just feel racked with guilt every minute of the day. Um, there's uh, right. I mean, because we, you know, as 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 we begin as we begin to realize the uh, you know the toll that humans have taken um, have taken on the have taken on the on the earth. Um, you know, one thing. You know, one thing that I have to admit about the project is, uh, and I don't really mention this in the book. Um, you know, but I can tell you when I started this project, I didn't actually have any affection for animals at all. Um, I had always found zoos to be interesting places, and I had always found animals to be fascinating. Um, I never, I never really sort of approached animals with anything like affection though. And I found that working at the zoo and spending so much time with the same animals day after day, um, gave me this sort of, um, gave me this kind of appreciation for these animals that I had never really had before. And I have to say the, the other thing that did that for me was spending so much time around zookeepers, um, who, you know, as Laura mentioned, I write in the book, um, are college educated, um, college educated, um, you know, workers, uh, they're largely women, um, and they get paid very, very little 
for the work that they do and the care that they give uh, to these animals that they feel so deeply toward. Um, and it was by spending a lot of time, not just with these animals, but with these zookeepers um, that I gained a kind of appreciation um, for, um, for sort of, for sort of the non for sort of non-human animals in a way that I don't think I had I don't think I don't think I had before, um, and I'm not quite sure if it makes me a better sociologist, but I feel like it it does make me probably a better father and uh, maybe a better person. Hmm. Yeah, well, I guess we have to be uh, people and, and uh, sociologists uh, as well, all at, this, all at the same time. Uh, what you know, one of the things I really um, admired also about the book is that. When it's so easy to be ironic and exclusively critical, you're also constructive, so deeply ambivalent about the potential for zoos. But you seem to think, despite the problems teaching about things like evolution um, because of, of how it affects funding streams, there still might be a possibility for zoos uh, teaching about the natural sciences. And uh Despite all of the strange and unfortunate ways people interact in zoos, there's still possibly a good example of Elijah Anderson's cosmopolitan canopy, where a variety of groups can come together um, in this uh, in in one particular urban space. So I just want to um, thank you on behalf of everyone here for writing a fantastic book, for taking lots of time to talk with us and um, and and fielding our questions. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Oh, sure. Thanks a lot, guys, for reading my book.